God, I'm so thankful for my church family. I'm thankful that you love us, that you've taken care of us, that you've been faithful to us, and you've provided for us throughout this time. As we give to you, we want to be so purposeful in making it a a gift and an act of worship back to you. We want to show you how much we trust you, how thankful we are for your providence in our lives. Be with us this week, be with this service, and help us as we plan our return uh, in a few weeks. We love you so much. This is all in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Alrighty, Pastor Harold. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor Jeremy. I appreciate the, uh, uh, all the housekeeping issues and uh, the technological tools that you guys have available to you that are, that are made available and uh, possible through all of our staff members' hard work. Uh, we're excited about being back in person, and uh, I know Susan and I have already registered. To, we registered this morning, answered our questions. It's going to ask you a few questions. Pastor Jeremy didn't over-elaborate about this, which is uh, awesome on his part, but it's not on my part, so I need to just tell you. It's going to ask some questions. Do you have COVID symptoms? Uh, are you? Uh, will you abide by the rules when you come back? All of those kind of things. So there's a few questions it'll ask, and you have to agree or disagree. What I would say to you in a very loving way, If you have any symptoms, you've been around people who have symptoms. You don't intend to follow social distancing rules. Uh, You intend to be contrary and cough all over everybody. You must stay at home uh, because we are so excited about being back together as a a group in person uh, to, to worship together, to praise God together, to sing, to take communion and uh, we're missing this part of our lives so desperately. We want to be back, but there are some guidelines. Please follow them. And if you have any symptoms or, or any of what I've talked about, then you have to be the very responsible person that says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be cautious and stay uh, apart from my fam- church family for a few more weeks until all of this has, has cleared up in, in my own context. Because protecting your church family is super important right now. And I just want to really stress that you be the responsible one that says, I'm going to stay home because I think maybe it's not good for me to to expose my church family. Uh, And I know sometimes you don't know who you've been exposed to, but we want to we want to minimize the, the risk and exposure to the church family. And that's on every individual member to police themselves and and to make sure they're doing the right thing for the church family. We've been very cautious up till now and we're excited about being back together. Let's continue our short stories uh, series. And I know that Pastor David really challenged you last week with an awesome message. And I hope that his message not only challenged you last week, but, but it affected how you pray, that it had some really pragmatic, practical application for you that when you're praying now, you're beginning to think a little differently about how you articulate your prayers to God or you're checking your own internal attitudes towards God as you're articulating your prayers to him or, or you're, you're, you're coming with expectations knowing he loves you and he delights to answer you and that he's a good and loving God and he already knows what you need but he wants to have this give and take exchange through this technology, this medium of prayer where we can communicate with God and and talk out our our heart and our feelings and our uh, needs to God. 
in, in a way that's indicative of a deep and meaningful relationship. So I know that uh, his sermon uh, affected you in that way, and, and you're beginning to to think through the things we're discussing here week by week as you reach out to God in prayer. These parables that we're talking through now, these last four <clears throat> coming, are all about prayer. They're called prayer parables. And again, this morning, I'm going to deal with one of the prayer parables. <clears throat> if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter number 18. And before I read the parable of the unjust judge, let me give you the background of the parable that happened just in the previous chapter in Luke. <clears throat> in the previous chapter, Jesus is teaching about faith. So if you'll get back into chapter 17, that's what you'll see. He's talking about faith. He's dealing with people on a level of their faith. In Luke 17, verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. This becomes a talking point where the disciples of Jesus have now approached him and said, we realize we're struggling with our faith. Lord, help us uh, increase our faith. And this becomes one of the themes of chapter 17 that sets up our story in chapter number 18. Also in chapter number 17, he heals the 10 lepers. And this is a maybe a familiar parable to you where he's having this exchange and, and uh, uh, what's striking maybe is this lack of thankfulness uh, towards Christ for what he's just given them their lives back essentially. And uh, there's an exchange that happens and, and we read something else about faith, Luke 17 verse 19. Jesus told them, him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. And uh, he's dealing with this leper who's receiving a healing. He's being thankful and he's articulating his thanks to Christ. And Jesus is talking about the connection between faith and salvation now, which is something we very much believe at Cornerstone, that salvation is through a medium of faith. It always has been. It always will be. We don't believe in many different paths or many different ways to find salvation. We believe that Romans is very clear when it talks about Abraham in the Old Testament. He was justified by his faith. He believed and God counted it to him for righteousness. And Paul begins to even articulate the same thing into our New Testament faith. Uh, for whosoever believes and whosoever calls upon Jesus Christ shall be saved. So he tells the leper, your faith has saved you. And he goes to the temple then for uh, the official proclamation on his cleansing. That sets up chapter number 18, where our story this morning involves a widow of all things. Now, uh, I have to give you a little bit of cultural context uh, about widow as found in the New Testament in your Bible. When you see widow in your New Testament, you have to really remove yourself from an American Western cultural context. Christianity has transformed Western culture. So Western culture looks very differently than culture looked in the reading of the, the first century New Testament. Uh, when you say widow in its context of the Bible, uh, you get a very different picture. Widows were and widows are presently in the East quite numerous. Uh, and when you hear the word widow, well, let's just do a little game together, a uh, little exercise. When, when you hear the word widow, I want you to paint a mental picture right now. So in your mind, 
I say widow, boom, you imagine a picture in your mind. Okay, what color is her hair? The widow in your mind, what color is her hair? Probably for 100% of you, the answer is gray. How old is the widow in your mind? For most of you, she's 70, 80 years old. That's the mental image we have. Does this widow in your mind, does she own her own home? Where does she live? She lives in a home that she's lived in for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's paid off. With what income does the widow purchase groceries and pay for electricity? Where does this income come from? You're thinking social security check. So your construct of a widow is very different from a biblical construct of the word widow. When I say widow, if I were teaching this in, in India or Nepal or in, in, in Myanmar or Thailand or the east, the east of this planet, if I were teaching this in the east and I said widow and I said draw a picture, describe your widow, they would describe something totally different than you just described from your own mental picture. Uh, they marry much earlier in the East, obviously, uh, and even more so in biblical times. They married much earlier in the East. Teenage brides were very common in the first century Eastern world. And if you were 12 or 13 or 14 years old, you were being matched up in an arranged marriage and the parents made the agreements and you were espoused to a man and by the ages of 12, 13, 14, 15, you're already being matched up and many cases married off by your parents. The receiving family, the one who gets the, the bride, pays the dowry uh, to the bride's family. And uh, it's, a, it's a very bizarre thing to us in the Western world. And to many in the East, a very corrupt thing as well, where they're marrying to get that money. They're not marrying out of, out of love or, or any of the context that you would have for marriage. Now add to that cultural context another social condition of the first century. The mortality rate was very high. Uh, from the research that I've done, it says that in Roman society, half of the children died at childbirth or before the age of 10. One half of all children born into the Roman Empire died either at childbirth or before the age of 10. When you think about all of the vaccinations we have today that they didn't have and all of the harsh living conditions that they had in the first century, you understand the mortality rate is very high. If you did make it past age 10, you then might be strong enough to go on and live to 35 or 40 years old, which was the average lifespan in Roman the Roman world of the first century. Uh, it was very common for widows uh, to be very young women in their 20s. It could even be a teenager and be a widow. But it was very common in Israel when Jesus gave this parable. It's very common in Israel for a widow to be a woman who's 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 years old. Young, strong, healthy women 
were widowed because of the conditions that I just described, which is why the Apostle Paul explained to the Ephesian church that the young widows were to remarry in 1 Timothy 5.14. What is found in most of 1 Timothy, actually all of 1 Timothy, is written to the Ephesian context, to Timothy as the pastor of the Ephesian church. And 1 Timothy, uh, as we presented to you in many of our messages, has some very, very peculiar cultural contexts about how the city worships Diana and the issues that they had were very unique to their culture. And and one thing that was unique to their culture is they had a high mortality rate and there were very young widows. And so in the church in Ephesus, Paul's saying, listen, you young ladies that are 20 and 30 years old and your widows, remarry and to go on and 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 raise another family even if you want to and and live your life and, and be happy and, and and all of these things. So in America, again, having been affected by 2,000 years of Christianity, we're in a completely different mental and, 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 and cultural and, and uh, social construct than the first century. Uh, in America, we see widows as a group of people that f- families should look out for. We see widows in our Western culture as... Uh, the classification of widows, these are people not to be messed with. You don't take advantage of them. You don't, you don't uh, defraud them. If anything, you care for them and do benevolent acts for them. The widow who lives on your street is, is not the, the, the person you take advantage of. It's the person that everybody looks out for. So we might cut her grass. You might take her food. You might do some kind of act because our culture has been influenced by Christianity, that we value widows, we care for widows, and we do that because that was the teaching of Jesus. He said to care for the widow and the orphan and those who took advantage of them were not in his happy graces, uh, that we should care and love and, and do good things for them. So that's how Christianity affected us. But when the first century, when Jesus says there was a widow, they had a different mental image completely. We see a widow as something we should we should respect her and care for her because she is a widow. The East is exactly the opposite of the West on this issue of the widow. In the East, the widow has no right of inheritance regarding the home she lives in, the property that uh, she lives on, or the wealth and assets that she has accumulated. In the East, The assets stay with the sons or they are controlled by the husband's family. So if your husband dies and you're widowed, your sons will get everything immediately. Or if you don't have sons, all of the home, the assets that you have revert to your husband's family, not retained by the widow. It's very much the opposite of Western culture. And Westerners who read these things about widows would say, well, it's okay. At least she has sons or daughters or whatever, and her children will take care of her. Oh, no, you don't understand the Eastern culture. The children will not care for her uh, as just a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the most heartbreaking things I experienced as I've understood the culture of India for all of these decades, uh, loving my Indian friends and making disciples, is the plight of the widow in Asia. 
when her husband dies, the widow is often cast into the streets, becomes homeless street person, just living out of the garbage on the streets because her children and her husband's family have now said, you're a burden, we will not take care of you. And they immediately after the death of her husband, kick her out into the streets to fend for herself. You say, well, do, does the widow ever stay with the husband's family? It is possible. But if she remains with the husband's family, it is very likely she will be treated as a servant, not as an equal in the house. So once the husband dies, she reverts to servant status. She's not a peer level to the other people in the house. You say, well, fine. She's a 20 year old widow. Let her go back to her parents' house. Well, there's complications with that as well. She can return to her father's house and go live with her mom and dad. But if she returns to her parents' home because she's a young widow, then her parents have to repay the dowry they received from the husband's family. And you already know the answer to this. They already spent it. They don't have it. So it means selling off then maybe their family home or their assets in order to repay that dowry to redeem their daughter back and get her off the streets and protect her. If the family doesn't have the money to repay the dowry, there is one more option, which is also invoked quite often. If the family can't repay the dowry, then the young widow is sold as a slave in exchange for the debt they now owe. Now, just imagine this, selling your, your daughters as slaves because they've been widowed. Or it, it's a social nightmare. And this is the way the East has operated for a millennia. We're not going to change it overnight except through making disciples and Christianity. And uh, this is their construct. And, and you're thinking in your mind this morning here in the West, that's really messed up. This really is not fair. It's not a way to, to treat these, these widows. You're correct. And so when Jesus wanted to make a teaching point about Life circumstances spinning out of control, life not being fair, dealing with difficult issues that come out, come at us from out of the blue. Christ would use a widow to illustrate just this very thing. Here we go. Luke 18, verse one. He told them the parable on the need for them to pray always and not to give up. Uh, I think it's fair now that I could look into the camera and say everyone watching this has been blindsided now. Life has blindsided you. No one saw this coming. And even if you said, well, I knew that a pandemic was possible, you didn't expect it here. And you didn't expect society to maybe respond the way it has. Or you didn't expect the government to respond and shut down things. We never envisioned school systems being shut down and places of business being shut down and restaurants shut down. And we never envisioned in prosperous North Texas grocery shelves being empty. You, you never could have imagined this or seen this coming uh, so quickly and so unexpectedly. And I think there's some lessons in all of this that this is how fast life can come at you with unexpected situations and when we hit adversity like this, 
the 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 what it triggers is it triggers a sense of helplessness a sense of hopelessness uh anxiety levels rise incredibly and so jesus says listen you ought to have faith previous chapter you ought not to quit throw up your hands in desperation what you ought to do is pray so he tells this story let me read you the parable of the unjust judge luke 18 verse 2 there was a judge in a certain town who did not fear god or respect people and a widow in that town kept coming to him he's a government official it calls him a judge the widow in the town kept coming to him saying give me justice against my adversary for a while he was unwilling but later he said to himself even though i don't fear god or respect people yet because this widow keeps pestering me i will give her justice so that she does not wear me out with her persistent coming then the lord said listen to what the unjust judge says will not god grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night will he delay helping them i tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice nevertheless when the son of man comes will he find faith on the earth now if i were to ask you this morning take a minute in your watch party or take a minute with your family and summarize this parable you would likely respond with something like this in this story we are like the widow we come seeking help from god and even if god doesn't answer our prayers we're just to keep pounding on god and, and wearing out god until we beat him into submission and if we are persistent in our prayers then god will at some point say okay okay i relent and god will give us the answer that we want but this is certainly not what this parable is teaching it is certainly not what christ is communicating to us this morning as a matter of fact it's not even good theology and yet that's the normal takeaway from this parable for example your child comes to you usually in a public display done on purpose to manipulate you they're smarter than you think they are daddy i want these skittles daddy the skittles do you see this you're trying to check your groceries out the candy's put there on purpose to torment parents daddy the skittles i want the skittles daddy can i have the skittles no put those back in daddy i need those skittles you switch from want to need normally i i need those skittles the skittles dad the skittles and just wearing you out with words while you're engaged with the activity of, of shopping or, or checking out and there's typically two responses you either get angry or you relent and give the child what they ask for so let me just verbalize this if you get angry that's bad parenting or if you relent and you give the child what they are badgering you for that's also bad parenting both responses are not the correct response on the parents part but this is not a parable where jesus is saying go 
and do as the widow did. You're not told in the parable, see the widow, be like the widow, respond like the widow. That's not what the parable is asking you to do. The story is moving from the lesser to the greater, from the lesser reasoning to the greater reasoning, which is the design structure of many parables. If the lesser is true, then the greater will also be true. So first of all, let's notice the character of the judge in the story. Look at verse number two. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. What a horrible public servant. I mean, I love this story Jesus is telling. I'm wondering who that audience that was right there, uh, what, how many public servants might have been standing there hearing these words. What a horrible public servant. I don't, I, I don't love God. I don't respect people. And you get the sense very quickly that this is a public servant that's in it for their own gain. This is a public servant that's only concerned, not with the public, as a public servant should be, but here's a public servant who's in service for themselves. Ding, 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 ding. First century has more in common now with America. Uh, maybe we found a beautiful connection here. How many of our public servants don't really care about the public? Gosh, you notice our Congress went on break again without another relief package or any help. Where are they? On vacation. While we're suffering, wondering, what do we do? Okay. Uh, there's a lot of public servants, I think, in history who fit this. And well, did Jesus set this up? Here's the judge. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect people. He did finally relent, it's true, and decided to help the widow. And you can find out why he helped the widow, because as judges do, he wrote an opinion paper, and his opinion paper for his decision is found in verse 4 and 5. Let me read it again. Here's the opinion paper. For a while he was unwilling, but later, he, for a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because the widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. He did relent and decide to help her, but what was his reasoning behind why he took the legal decision he took? It was completely self-serving. He only helped her out of concern for his own personal comfort. I add to that, what a jerk. What a jerk, seriously. So when Jesus tells the story, frames this up beautifully so that you immediately understand what type of character you're dealing with. This parable is not about how we are to be like the widow. This parable is about how God is absolutely not like the judge. It's not about how you're to be like these characters. The parable is about how God is not like earthly rulers who act according to their own self-interests. That's really the gist of this parable. Look at verse number seven. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay? Will God delay helping you? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them just grant you, his children, justice. If an unjust judge would help a widow, and he's a complete jerk. 
That's the story. How much more would your loving Heavenly Father help his own children that he's in a loving relationship with? The point of this story is this. God delights to quickly answer your prayers. God is not like a self-serving politician with all his own personal agendas. God's all about caring for his children. Now, let, let me speak from my own perspective for just a moment. My dilemma is not that I lack persistence in prayer, but my dilemma is my own improper attitudes in prayer. Because sometimes when I'm coming to God in prayer, I really feel in my heart like God doesn't care about me. I approach prayer like, well, if you really cared, let me tell you what's going on down here. And already I've got a wrong attitude in my heart and mind as I'm reaching out to God. I'm approaching God as if he fundamentally doesn't care about me. And I've got to convince him, please care about me. And already I've set up a inappropriate attitude towards God or an inappropriate uh, projection on God, which is just not true. I sometimes pray thinking God doesn't understand my situation. Like God, I know you don't know what's going on here, but let me take a few minutes to explain to you how things are happening down here and how messed up it is. Well, already I've got an improper projection towards God who's all-knowing and does understand my situation. And it's okay to tell him the details and talk out your situation, but it's not okay for me to approach God as if he doesn't get it. He does get it. He does get us. I have a bad attitude towards God because maybe he allowed me to experience some mistreatment in this world. Hey, God, don't you see I'm being mistreated? Yes, he, he knows that. And maybe I have those some resentment or bad attitude towards him because he's allowed his child to be mistreated in this world. So when we approach God with the attitude that he really doesn't get us, or he really doesn't understand how we feel, or you don't, don't really know what's going on, God, what we're really doing is we're showing a great amount of disrespect towards God because we're assuming something about the character of God, which is untrue. It's not a small thing to assume untrue things about God or to project things upon God which are not correct. So consciously or unconsciously, we do this in prayer a whole lot. Imagine your child coming to you and saying, Daddy, I, I know you really don't care about me, but if you did care about me, let me tell you what I'm dealing with. Let me tell you what my situation is like. Uh, uh, Mom and Dad, I know you could never understand what it's like to be a teenager and to go through what I'm going through, but here's my situation. Uh, that would be a prayer that's set up on a wrong footing already. Imagine your child coming to you and saying, Mom, I know you really never respond when I cry for help, but if you did care, let me just put this out here. Well, you would say to your child, wait, you've made wrong assumptions about my love for you as a child. I do care. I do get you. I do know what you're going through. I do care, and I will respond in love to help my child. Take all of that now and, and now overlay that on your relationship with God. We come at God as a petulant child sometimes saying those things about God 
and they're not true of God. We also fall into another trap. We often think that if we bombard God enough, and David talked a little bit about this last week, but if we bombard God with enough words, then finally, out of exasperation, God will say, I am so tired of hearing from you on this matter that I will relent and give you just to shut you up. Click. Now, that's terrible theology. Terrible theology. And that it... Uh, and I'm afraid to some degree, uh, I, I know where the verses are. James, effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We're to be serious in our prayer. We're to come to God in our prayer and, and expect God to uh, respond to our prayers in faith. But nowhere in the Bible does it say, just try to wear God out, that if you say it 6,037 times, finally God will snap in a fit of exasperation and say, okay, okay, wow, I didn't get you until right now, but now I see you've asked 6,037 times for this thing. Now I see that you're sincere in the matter and I'm going to grant it to you. It's just terrible theology and it projects so many wrong things onto the character of God. So let me ask you, when you pray, do you have confidence that God cares and that he will respond quickly? This frames the correct attitude in prayer. To come to God in prayer and say, God, I know you love me and you care about me. And I know you are not like earthly rulers. You are something altogether different in your love and care for your children. And you will respond quickly to my prayer request. But sometimes we think God doesn't get us. The Bible clearly destroys this false assumption. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 18, the book of Hebrews tells you that Jesus totally gets you. This is what's so unique about God becoming flesh and going through the whole process of maturation. Jesus went through puberty. Jesus went through childhood. Jesus went to school. Jesus learned the alphabet. Jesus learned obedience to his parents. Jesus grew up in the world you grew up in. He was tempted like we are tempted. He went to funerals. His earthly father, Joseph, was one of them he went to. Oh, he gets it. Trust me. And here's what Hebrew says. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Now, I can't say that everybody, I can't, what, what I'm saying is this morning, I can't say that I always get you. So I haven't experienced maybe everything the way you've experienced it. But what I can say to you is Jesus certainly gets you. He was tempted. He grew up in this world. He suffered. He gets you. Now, what that means is when you come to him in prayer, you don't have to say with an attitude in your heart, I know you don't get me, but I'm going to say this anyway. Instead, we can say, I know you totally understand me. And thankfully, there's someone in this universe I can bear my soul to who totally, totally gets me and understands where I'm coming from and what I'm dealing with. So this affects how we pray. So this week when we pray, we should all this week use some different language in prayer. 
We should express our confidence to God when we pray. Let me give you some suggested phrases from my prayer toolbox this morning. When you pray this week, why don't you use phrases like this? God, you've been so faithful to care for me. Dot, dot, dot. Now keep praying. Or say to God, God, you've always responded to me with such compassion. God, you've always responded to me with such care. God, you've never turned a deaf ear to my prayers. You've always heard my petitions. God, you are awesome. And so God, dot, 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 fill in the rest. Here's some language we could all use this week to help us transform our attitudes. God, I know you hear my prayer. On the authority of the word of God, I know you hear my prayers. And you're the one person I can come to that I know today will hear what I have to say. And I need to be heard. By the way, here's something that's true of every one of us. We need to be heard. It's part of our DNA. We long to be heard. Well, there is one place you can be heard and you can be heard by the supreme commander of the universe. How cool is this? Again, Hebrew, come boldly into the throne of grace and engage with God and say, God, I know you hear my prayers. God, I know you know what I'm going through. God, you know. And then you can just fill in the blanks and keep talking to God. But it emanates and it articulates a certain confidence towards God that helps us correct our bad uh, attitudes or unjust projections upon a God. And we can start using language that says, God, I know you love me. I know you care. And I want to articulate that first of all. Let me give you three quick thoughts about this parable. First one is simply this. God does care. I think we've set that up now. The unjust judge did not care about justice. He did not care about the community. He did not care about the widow. He did not care about his other constituents. He only cared about himself. And this parable is contrasting the attitude of that judge against the attitude of our God and saying, our God cares. There's a great verse. It's my dad's favorite verse. Let me read two verses, verse before and then his verse. First Peter 5, 6 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in the proper time. First Peter 5, 7 it's my dad's favorite verse, casting all your cares upon him because he cares about you. I'll leave this verse up for just a second. I want your eyes to focus on these words. Just let your eyes drink in 1 Peter 5, 7. And while your eyes are drinking that into your heart, let me ask you a question. Does God care for you? Well, the answer would be yes. If you prayed for something and God said no, does God still care for you? The answer would be yes. If you prayed for something and God told you not now, later, not now, does God still care for you? The answer is yes. God always cares for you. You can cast all your care upon him because he cares 
for you. Let me give you an example. If your 14-year-old comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, I want the keys to the car. We would say to our 14-year-old, no way, Jose. You're not getting the keys to the car. You're not ready yet. But a year later, we'll be tossing the keys to that same 15-year-old and signing them up for driver's ed. What changed? Timing. Maturation. Same personalities involved. The only difference is a little bit of time. The time was not right. And even though we are grown children now, often we carry into adulthood the same attitude of we want it, and by golly, we want it right now. So I want to admonish all of us this morning in our prayer life with God, not only do we need to let God answer the way he wants to answer, which will always be the right answer, but we need to allow God to answer in his timing. And we need to trust that God not only knows what's best, but he knows when it's best to introduce that into our life. So we need to trust God's answers and we need to trust God's timing the same way that you would ask your children to trust your timing. We often ask our children to submit to us and just trust my timing on this. In the same way, our Heavenly Father is saying, okay, trust my timing on this. Does God care? Sure, he cares. More than you could ever imagine, he cares. My second thought is prayer is our present technology. Communication is essential to any healthy relationship. We know that. And when a relationship goes bad, typically communication is gone. It's broken down completely and two parties are no longer communicating. And that's hence what has led to the breakdown in the relationship. So prayer is an essential part of our relationship with God. It's how we communicate with God. Surely those of you who've lived through our recent technology explosions can understand some of this concept, uh, you once had a phone mounted to the wall in the kitchen. At least in our homes, it was always, uh, my mother's sitting here, she's got a few years on us, so, was it always mounted in the kitchen? Pretty much. Uh, a phone, a home that had one phone. I never remember it being, now I know that later you got extensions in the bedroom or, or the hallway, the hallway or the kitchen. It was always in a communal space there. There was a phone on the wall, a single phone in the house. Now, I'm just going through memories now. Let me go through the roll of deck. It was yellow, almost always in our house. Susan, yellow? yellow. You guys are too young. Okay, <laughs> yellow. Uh, and it, 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 was, it came from the phone company. When you established the service, they brought the phone to your house and hung it on the wall. Okay, it had a rotary dial. It came with the short curly cord factory, but you could go to the store. You could go to Kmart or Gibson's or TGNY if you lived in the country and you could buy a really long, like a 10 or 20 foot curly cord that hung all the way down the wall. So you could actually move around in the kitchen a little bit with that phone uh, against your shoulder to your ear. That's how it all started now. And that was, you know, the fifties and the sixties and the 70s, and then the technology explosion started. That's how we used to communicate. If you want to communicate, you go to the kitchen, 
you turn the dial and you stay anchored in there to, to the wall. And then it, we discovered a thing called a cordless phone with a base station. And you could move a certain number of feet before the signal, something you might could get to the patio and to the front porch, but you couldn't walk out to the street or the signal would drop. It was not that kind of technology. And, and, and then we got this thing called a brick phone, which was the first, like the, a bag phone actually. So the first mobile communication was in a bag. Uh, it's like a cell phone in a briefcase. It took up the entire briefcase and you carried the briefcase with you. It was the cell phone. And then we got slick and they took the whole briefcase and turned it into a thing the size of a giant Acme brick. We called that the brick phone. You know, it's like this massive like shoebox to your ear kind of thing. And then within just a few more years, somebody introduced a flip phone. And then before you knew it, we had a smartphone that could connect to the internet. And then before you knew it, we had an iPhone. And, and now we've got, what are we on? Generation 10, I think, or so of the iPhone. Where are we at? We're past that. We're past that? 11? Wait, well, it kind of, it's confusing. It's, it's now confusing beyond yeah. that. We don't use numbers anymore? Kind of. Yeah. Okay. They're telling me don't pursue that. You're showing <laughs> your age. Okay. So what I'm saying is with each advancement of technology, it made the previous technology passe outdated, obsolete, no longer needed. You didn't keep those old phones around. Well, they were absolutely good for nothing. Play toys, toys for the kids. Yeah, they didn't do anything. And uh, uh, what I want you to think about is prayer is our present technology. Prayer is the thing that we use to communicate with God. It's how we talk to God through prayer but the end of prayer is not very far away we're just waiting for the return of our lord and prayer will be obsolete it'll be passe it'll be old news maybe there's another technology coming but we know there's more of a face-to-face -face reality coming some of the old songs that uh bygone generations of Christians used to sing, articulated this. I'll shout while passing through the air, farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. Uh, but Christians have long recognized that prayer is our present technology. It's all we've got right now. And you may say, I, I, I don't like it, but it's all you've got. And if you want to talk to God, it's how you talk to God and you have to master how to use the present technology. Sure, one day it'll become obsolete with the return of Christ, but until then, it is what we've got, and it is pretty slick when you think about it. It's not like a dated form mode of communicating. No dial tone, no, no buttons to push, no number to memorize. Hebrew says you can bow your head and come boldly right into the throne room of God as if you were standing there before God, you can articulate your request and it's being heard through this technological marvel called prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, boom, I'm transported to the throne room of God. Not physically. Spiritually, I have opened up a connection. I have opened up a communication channel to the very throne of God. Now that's slick. And that's way, way ahead of its time, which God always is. And it is the technology that we use to communicate with God.
Sure, not having the answer we want when we want it, that's difficult for us. Because something in our DNA wants our answer and we want we want our petition granted, yes, and we want it right now. But you have to assess yourself this morning. So this is assessment is a matter of your spiritual development. Here's your question. Am I pressuring God to get on my schedule? Or am I conforming to God's schedule? And this is part of what prayer does in us. It's not just a communication tool. It's a transformation tool. Because as I talk out my request with God, one, I know he heard it. I know he's acknowledged it. I know it's being considered and answered. I know he loves me and I know he's swift answer and I don't have to beat him down to get him to answer me. I'm not trying to manipulate him. So when the thing I'm praying for, when the job, let's use an example, when the job I'm praying for doesn't come today, I have to trust that God swiftly answers my prayers, but according to, to his timetable, he's letting a thing unfold a certain way. He does love us. He does care. He is going to answer. Let it play out. Trust the goodness of God and expect that your phone's going to ring tomorrow or the email's going to come on Tuesday and the job's being set up right now and God maybe has to move one person out of that job to move you into that job. So a lot of moving pieces to the universe, trust me. Let God manage it. Through the process of prayer, I learn I can't manipulate God and I shouldn't expect him to get on my schedule. Through the prayer process, I learn to conform to God's schedule. It conforms me to him. It transforms me to have his mind. So this morning, examine and see if you've got wrong attitudes towards God. He's not dispassionate about caring for you. He's eager. He's willing to bless you, and he's always faithful to answer our prayers. The biggest question we have to answer this morning is, what about our faithfulness? I almost worded this, what about faithfulness? But clearly God's faithfulness is not the issue here. It's really, what about our faithfulness? The parable is directing us to cry out to God, and expect God to answer our prayers. But it also reminds us that it's our responsibility to be faithfully on mission while we're waiting for the answer to our prayers. The parable is not about persistence in prayer. It's been wrongly taught so much. You just have to be faithful in your prayers. You just have to keep asking. You just have to keep asking. You just have to keep asking. That's exactly not what this parable is teaching. This parable is teaching that God is not like an unjust judge. He's loving, he hears your prayers, and he grants swiftly action for his children. This parable has two primary concerns. Let me restate them. We direct our focus on the caring nature of God, who is not like the uncaring rulers of this world. Instead, God is merciful and kind and generous and compassionate and he is very eager to assist and bless his children that's the character of god secondly the parable wants us to focus on making disciples staying on mission being faithful until the return of christ we stay on mission we continue to grow 
We invest our lives in others. We're going to be consistent in communication with God, this thing of prayer. And we're going to talk out with God what's going on in our lives and where we are and what we're in need of. And we're going to talk out all of these situations as we experience life, basically, as we go through our life. We're going to say, God, I know you know, and I know you love me, and I know you care, but I need to talk this out with you because it's transforming me to understand you and your mind and your timing and your will. And I'm going to stay focused on mission until the prayers are all answered in the way they need to be answered. The parable ends in a very curious way. After talking about how God is, then Jesus delivers an assessment question to his hearers as the punchline of the whole story or the assessment at the end of the story. Listen to the verse, Luke 18, verse 8. After Jesus told the story, here's what he said to his hearers. I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? On the earth. Now, the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite term for himself. When he refers to himself, he says, The Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which is all. The Son of Man, when he returns, when the Son of Man returns, I'll, I'll be a little more direct. When Jesus Christ returns, will he find faith here? If Christ comes today or this week, Will he find the Cornerstone family faithfully on the mission that he left us to execute when he left this planet? When he left, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them and teach them all the things that I've commanded. And I'm going to be with you till the end of the world. When he returns now, and I think we're getting more close to that hour, certainly every day. It's imminent. When Christ returns, will he find us faithfully on the mission that he assigned to us? It's very interesting, this parable, because see, when you read the parable, you're asking, Jesus, will you be faithful to answer my prayers? When he ends the parable, he says, that's not even a concern. I'm on it. God loves you. He cares. He's on answering your prayers. The bigger question is, God wants to know if you're going to be faithful to stay on his mission until he returns. Investing your life in other people, giving to the cause of Christ, investing your time, talent, energy, and making disciples, build the kingdom of God, Live out the character of Christ to the world. Will you be faithfully on mission when he returns? He's simply saying, I'm going to be faithful to do my part. Are you going to be faithful to do your part? You never have to worry if God hears your prayers. Listen, this morning, the ears of God are open. He's holding court. He's hearing your petitions. If you bring your petition, your prayer to God today, it will be heard. It will be answered. And it will be answered because God loves his children. He is not like the rulers of this world who are only self-serving. He doesn't do what he does just so that he can be all glorified. He loves you.
and he wants to do for you wonderful things. Leaves us with some decisions to be made, obviously, this morning. Because what we learn is one day prayer will be over. One day the opportunity to experience life change and make disciples will be over. We'll be entered into another phase of what the kingdom looks like. Maybe bigger, one day the opportunity to turn from your sins and receive Christ will be over. Which means that there are some impending decisions that need to be made today. God's listening to your prayers. If there's something you need to bring to him, bring it with faith and courage and boldness. He loves you. He can't wait to bless his children. You say, well, why do I have to ask if he knows? I don't know. He set it up this way because it's about a relationship. How often have you read in the Bible you have not? Because, help me here, you ask not. Ask. He delights to do things for his children. He is good, he is generous, and he loves you. Certainly there's some things you need to take to him. Maybe this pandemic's brought some anxieties to you that have just overwhelmed you. Talk it out. Talk it out with Jesus. Bring him your anxiety. Bring him what's broken. If you don't know how to articulate it, just try. And as you try to talk through what you want to articulate to God, maybe you don't even know what to ask for. Maybe you don't really know what you need. Try to talk it out. Just start the conversation. I can't tell you how many conversations I start in prayer when I say, God, I don't even know what this next few minutes looks like, so I'm just going to start talking. And let's see where it goes. I don't know if I have the right words to explain what I'm feeling or what I really need. I, I certainly don't know what the fix is for this. And I just start talking. And somewhere in the conversation, I get a sense of peace that God knows what I'm talking about. And he took my rambling and the Bible says through the power of the Holy Spirit has turned it into some discernible conversation on the other end. Uh, that the Spirit knows what I need and he can talk to God in maybe a better language than I can. But just begin to talk it out. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, I want you to know that Christ died for you and he loves you. And he's long-suffering and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You are that all. When the Bible says... God loved the world and gave his son that whosoever would call upon him. You're that whosoever that needs to call upon Jesus Christ for salvation today. You need a relationship with God. You need your sin debt paid for. You need to be proclaimed clean and righteous in the eyes of God. The only way to do that is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You enter into that relationship with God. If you've never done that, I want to just give you an opportunity right now to pray that prayer. Whether you're in small groups or watch parties, wherever you're watching from, or if you're alone this morning, I just want you to bow your head and close your eyes. I want you, if you've never received Christ, pray with me right now. I don't have magic words. In other words, there's not some specific formula you need to say. It's not an incantation. 
It's a belief in your heart that is expressed through language or through prayer. So if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he came to this world and lived the life of perfection and he laid down his life on the cross as a substitute for you and I, he died in the place of sinners, he was buried and he rose again the third day to be a risen living Savior. If you believe that about God and you understand that you're a sinner who needs the salvation he offers, let's just try to articulate that in a prayer. God knows how to fill in the blanks. He knows how to help our imperfect language. If you've never received Christ, pray like this. Let it flow from your heart. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And Jesus, I believe you are the Savior I need, the only Savior I believe you're the son of God who came to be a man. And having lived a perfect life, you laid down your life on the cross for me. And you died in my place that I might be forgiven. Jesus, I believe that. I believe you were buried and rose again, raised by the power of God to be a living savior for me. This morning, I just wanted to say to you that I put my trust in you. I put my faith in you. And I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me. Lord, apply to my life the payment that you made on Calvary, on the cross to forgive me of my sins. Lord, I want to begin and have an ongoing relationship with you from this moment. You are my Savior. You are my King. You are my Lord. And I know when I call you Lord, then I have to do the things you say and let you be the Lord of my life. And that's what I commit to today. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for hearing my prayer. And thank you for making me your child and a citizen of your kingdom today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me this morning to receive Christ as your Savior, I, I would just love to know about that. I, I would love to share that with our staff and maybe send the Bible to you and begin a conversation about what next steps as a Christian look like for you. Uh, being a part of a church family, being connected to a community of believers, having someone be able to invest in your life and help you mature as a Christian are very, very important aspects of what comes next for you. If you receive Christ as your savior today, I'm just gonna have information here on the screen. Why don't you just text us uh, this happens fairly often where someone's going to send a text and just say, hey, uh, Pastor Bob, you Jeremy David, I, I just want you to know I, I prayed with you today. You may not know exactly how to articulate what's going on. Just, just take a stab at it. We know how to take your words and begin a conversation with you about what comes next in the Christian life. The big thing to know is you're not alone. We have a few more weeks of meeting like this, and we're going to be back live and in person in the, in the church. Let's pray for one another's health so that we all are healthy and strong, and we can come back together and worship in that environment. I want you to know you are loved, not just by your church staff and your, your elders and deacons. Most of all, this morning, I want you to know you're loved by God, and he's, his ears are open to your prayers. You will not go unheard. You will be heard, and he will grant your petitions according to his will. God bless you. You guys have a great week and I'll see you next week as we continue our series. God bless.